Well, good morning, Calvary Quakertown, and welcome. I hope you're all recovered from free fall yesterday, and I hope you didn't fall too much while you were there. Uh, we showed the video as well as you guys, and we were excited uh, to partner with that community event. Well, last week we started our fall series that we're calling For Everyone, and we're going to look at the book of Romans this fall, which is quite an undertaking for us, but we kind of think you're up to the task, and so we need to kind of navigate that together. Last week we started by looking at the introduction, and we said Romans is going to be all about the gospel, but what does that mean and how that works out? Well, today we're going to get into the first really meaty section of that. But to kind of tee that up, I thought I need to uh, remind you of a few things or let you know a few things if you don't already. I don't do gardening. I don't do mowing. I don't do landscaping. I don't do weed whacking, and I certainly don't cut down trees. But a couple of months ago, I cut down an arborvitae. I didn't know what that was. I asked somebody and they told me that was an arborvitae. All I know is it was hard getting underneath and it hurt me on the way. But the arborvitae kept wanting to cover our walkway and that was kind of a pain. It wasn't a pain to me, it was a pain to my wife, which meant then it was a pain to me that it was covering the walkway. And so one day I came home and I found a rusty old saw in the garage and I went out and in a matter of minutes, I cut that arborvitae down. That's the complete uh, tree falling experience that Charles has ever had. I have a son-in-law who has a lot of trees on his property, and uh, he tells me that he often has to cut trees down. I've never been there because I was afraid he'd put me to work, but he cuts trees down. And there are a number of reasons. Do you know there are a number of reasons you may have to cut trees down? You cut trees down because they're too close to the house, or you cut trees down because they're dangerous. Why are they dangerous? Well, because they're diseased. You ever look at a tree that's diseased? It looks kind of just like a tree that's not diseased. Maybe there are a couple little symptoms up top. Not quite as many leaves as the other one, but some of us don't have as much hair as other people, and that doesn't mean that we're diseased. It, you know, maybe the tree's just going through baldness. We don't know. But, you know, interestingly, once you cut down a diseased tree, it's pretty obvious the tree's diseased. Once you cut it down and you look inside the trunk, you see the fungus or the rot. It's kind of eating away the insides. And that diseased tree is actually very dangerous because if the roots are being destroyed and the decay is getting, well, it could fall at any time. That's kind of what Paul does at the beginning of Romans. Paul says, as you look at the human race, as you look around at people in general, you may see a couple of symptoms that things may not be right, but for the most part, from your perspective, things may be okay. But Paul says, make no mistake, the human race is diseased. The human race has a fungus. The human race is in a dangerous predicament. And that's what Paul thinks about as he starts this letter. We're not going to jump into the dangerous fungus right away. We're going to start where we left off last week. We left off last week by looking at verses 16 and 17 from chapter 1. Well, we're going to start this morning, you know, looking at verse 18, but we need to start in 16 and 17 because, remember, Paul wrote a letter, and when the original recipients got the letter, they read right through. They didn't start in verse, one, or verse 18 of chapter 1. They started at 1-1 and read right through. So we need a reminder. Before we get into the dead and dangerous and fungusy part, starting at 18, we need to remind ourselves the way Paul reminds his readers, yeah, things are going to get ugly here. 
We're going to talk about the decay. We're going to talk about the rot. We're going to talk about the predicament. But make no mistake, there is a cure. He mentions the cure before he then dissects the problem. Here's what he writes about the cure. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So starting today, when we look at the rot and the decay on the inside, with just a couple of symptoms on the outside, we need to keep in mind there is a cure for this disease. Paul says that before he dissects the cure. Well, what exactly... um, Did Paul remind us, and what is this gospel that brings the cure? Well, again, here's what we said last week. First and foremost, we need to remember, above all else, the gospel is not about us. Primarily, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about us. Primarily, the gospel is about Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about how to communicate that this week, and so here's here's what I've come up with. The gospel is hard news, not soft news. How many of you have ever watched an infomercial by accident or on purpose? Raise your hand. Yeah, an advertisement, okay? What are those infomercials besides annoying? Uh, Well, they're kind of news you can use. Infomercials come in the form of advice. And you ever notice, I, I think they go on a mission to find the most annoying people ever to introduce and to work the infomercial. So, for example, have you ever seen infomercials for cooking equipment? Pots, pans, slow cookers, knives and stuff? Tell me Wolfgang Puck is not annoying, right? I mean, that accent, he's selling all this stuff, right? Well, what is it? He's saying, you could really use these pots and pans. If you would send your check, I'll ship these, and it'll change your life. That's an infomercial. Maybe more, more annoying than old Wolfgang. Do you know that Marie Osmond has lost 50 pounds on Nutrisystem? Wow, that's exciting, isn't it? Talk about annoying. Uh, Another infomercial, right? You really need this. You could use it. We'll ship you the meals. You send us a check, and you can watch the weight fly off of you too. And then there are infomercials about hair loss cream and goo and gook to make the wrinkles disappear. And there are infomercials all across. They're all advice. They're all soft news. Buy the product, and it'll change your life. If you're a WIP listener, you know that these days they're advertising this fruit and vegetable thing you take, supplement you take. And the amazing thing is you open the bottle, it smells like fruit and vegetables. And it'll cure every disease known to man. All right? That's how infomercials work. The gospel is not an infomercial. The gospel's not advice. The gospel's not soft news. The gospel's hard news. The gospel doesn't tell us what can happen to you primarily. The gospel tells us what happened. The gospel is like this news. Hurricane Florence is on the way. You should act appropriately. That's what the gospel is like. Jesus has arrived. Live, believe appropriately. Can you imagine in ancient Rome, remember we said that the good news was often used in respect to an emperor. When the emperor ascends to the throne, heralds were sent out to announce, we have a king. 
Can you imagine in the Roman Empire that all the heralds went out and said, we've got good news. It's really good news. Caesar is on the throne. And if you would like a Roman Empire kind of experience, you can get you know, a Caesar tattoo and you can submit to him if you like. That's not how the heralds would say it. Heralds would say, we have a king. Act, act accordingly. We have a king. Live appropriately. That's the hard news. That is what the gospel is. It's the hard news that Jesus, the king, has arrived. Live, act, believe accordingly and appropriately. But secondly, the gospel is news for us. I, I, I read through the first few chapters and just jotted down as some words. And they fit into kind of two categories. Here's the difference the gospel can make in your life and in our lives. In the one column, life without Jesus. Words like this appear in the early chapter, chapters of Romans. Sin, judgment, condemnation, alienation, wrath, death, bondage, weakness, suffering, idolatry. In Jesus, here's the list of words. Grace, peace, acceptance, righteousness, reconciliation, gifts, love, hope, forgiveness, freedom, salvation, eternal life. The gospel, first and foremost, is not about us, it's about Jesus. But secondly, it is about us and all the benefit that the hard news of Jesus brings to us as we believe him and follow him. That's the gospel. First and foremost, Jesus, but secondarily, we can be included in that. And then one of the things that may kind of miss your, uh, miss your inspection, but we'll pick it up as we go through the book, the gospel makes a difference in how we live. Let me explain it like this. It changes dramatically, ultimately changes our relationship with God vertically. But throughout the letter, Paul says, and this good news about who Jesus is and the effect he can have on you, that changes everything horizontally too. A little history. When Claudius was emperor, that was about eight years or so before Paul wrote the letter. When Claudius was emperor, for some reason or another, he threw all of the Jews out of Rome. He didn't like them, I guess, right? So all the jewelers and stuff had to leave. So all, all the Jews left Rome, they're all gone. They scatter all over the kingdom, no Jews in Rome. Which meant that early church in Rome, about eight years before Paul's letter, up until a few years before Paul wrote it, the church was only comprised of Gentiles. And here's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing the Gentiles, when they would get together, they would say, aren't you glad those Jews are gone? I mean, all those little rules and regulations they had, not allowed to eat this, not allowed to eat that, got to do this, got to do that, jump through this hoop, can't. I'm so glad. They're, you know what? Now that the gospel's arrived, we don't need any of those rules or regulations. We're kind of glad they're gone. But then Nero ascends the throne, and he lets the Jews back in. Now the Jew, Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians have to go to church together. And all the Gentiles that were kind of saying, we're glad all your rules and regulations are gone. They're now sitting next to in church all the Jews that say, you know, Moses gave those rules and regulations and they're from God. And since they're from God, they never go away. Well, that's a harmony in that church, don't you think? 
Yeah, they were fighting and arguing all the time. Paul writes Romans not only to get us reconciled to God, but reconciled to one another. That's why the whole second half of the letter is all about, hey, this good news that Jesus is king can have an effect on you vertically and horizontally. You need now to live serving and loving one another as big as those differences are. Well, isn't that a message we need to hear today, right? As big as our differences are, making sure that the primacy of Jesus in the gospel brings reunion and reconciliation where there was separation and division. We need to live out that message. Well, now that we've had a little bit of the uh, reminder, let's jump in and read about the rotten tree. So you ready? Take your Bibles, your phone, your iPad, whatever you take to read, or you can just follow along and listen. I'm going to begin reading Romans 1.18. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. And I'm telling you right up front, it's pretty depressing. It's pretty dark. We're reading about the fungus inside, right? This is the tree that may look like it's okay, but when you cut it down, it's a mess. Here's the mess. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may, may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just like they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They, display, or they, they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteousness, righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. When you look at the tree of humanity, it may appear okay. But on the inside, it's disease to the core. Paul says, and here's some evidence. Well, there's a whole lot here, and we're not going to be able to work with all the details, but I do want to kind of give you the paradigm. I want to give you the dynamic that Paul teases out in the first section that I read. 
You see, Paul tells us how this process works. The title for this message is Rejection and Embrace. There, there's the dynamic in a nutshell, right? We reject something and then we turn and embrace something else. But rather than embracing God and what needs to be embraced, we reject what we should embrace, but we have to hold something. So we turn from it and we wind up embracing the wrong stuff. When you embrace the wrong thing, kind of your life becomes dangerous and deadly, right? That's the dynamic. But when Paul lays it out, starting in verse 18, he kind of does it in a few more steps. So I'm going to walk through four steps of the dynamic, and I'm going to ask you, you think of whatever biblical passage you want. You think of whatever group of people you know. Better yet, think of your own life and tell me if this isn't the exact dynamic that we follow as we go through the very process. Step one, suppression. Paul says, God continually pours forth his truth. God doesn't want to hide the truth from us. You know, some, some Roman emperors, uh, I think it was Nero, used to be particularly uh, insidious. He would write rules and regulations and laws in real tiny fine print, and then he'd post them real high in a building so nobody could read them. And then when those rules were broken, he would try people based on the rules that nobody knew, and he would convict them and punish them, sometimes kill them for little tiny laws, the fine print that he posted up on a roof somewhere. God's not like that. God's not hiding the things that we need to live by. God's sharing them. God's pouring them out. He does it through natural revelation. That, that's what Paul's saying here. You know, you can't learn everything you need to know about God from nature. You can't. But you can learn a couple of really important things. Here's what you can learn. God's pretty powerful, right? He made all that exists. I, you've got to be pretty strong to do that. He's also very creative. Think of the colors and the circles of life and how things operate and intertwine and how things are dependent on other things. It's amazing the intricacy, the elaborate nature of what God's made. He's creative. He's powerful. And the human race knows that. Now, it doesn't say, Paul doesn't mean every single individual has lots of information about God. That's not what he says. He's talking about the human race in general. Human beings in general throughout history they kind of look at everything that's created and they know that something or someone must have made it. And it must be pretty powerful and pretty creative. They know those things. Now we need the Bible and we need Jesus to learn that God is gracious and loving and merciful and forgiving. But we can learn some things about who God is just by looking around and taking account. What do people do though? Rather than accepting that and saying, Oh my goodness, there is a powerful God and he's very creative. You know what? I better live my life in a, as a steward underneath him. I better find out what he wants and live in light of it. No, no, no. Human beings suppress it. The idea there is we hold it under. Actually, the metaphor, sorry, the metaphor comes from the trapping world, right? You trap a little animal on the side of the creek, right? You go up and the thing's still kicking around. Hard to make a mink coat if the thing's kicking around. So what do you do? You suppress it. Sorry. You hold it under, and then you're able to make the coat. That's what we do with God's truth. It, God's pouring it forth, but we suppress it. Now, before you begin to think, oh, my goodness, those terrible, wretched pagans that do such. Yeah, do you ever suppress God's truth? We have a whole lot more of it than the people Paul's referring to in these first few verses. You come here and listen to the Bible. Some of you read the Bible. 
Some of you go to a small group and learn about the Bible. Do you ever take the truth that God's pouring forth and just kind of hold it under? So put it behind your back, kind of ignore it, put it on the back burner. That's the process. It always starts with suppression. That whole rejection and embrace, it starts by God telling us something, but we ignore it and put it away. But after suppression comes distortion. That just makes sense, right? Here's why. If you don't have all the facts, what are the chances are you're going to come to the right conclusion? Like slim to none. If you're denying all that God says, you're never going to come to the right conclusion. You need all of the data. So if you're suppressing a big chunk of the data, you don't have all the data, therefore your answers, how you're putting life together, isn't going to work. Distortion follows suppression. Uh, let, let me give you a couple examples of that. Do you ever notice how ingenious some criminals are? I mean, it is incredible. Like two examples. Here's the first one. How smart do you have to be to create and disseminate a computer virus? I can barely get my thing like to reboot correctly. These guys create something that if you click on the wrong clicker thing, all of a sudden your email sends an email to everybody you've ever known in your whole life, and they get an email, and before you know it, the world's infected. I mean, that takes a genius to do that, right? Uh, distorted? Like, who the heck would want to mess up everybody's life? Yeah, here's another example that uh, some of our urban partners spoke of. I'm not sure you know this, but a few years ago, um, over... One weekend, from a Friday night to a Sunday morning, all of the packaging for crack cocaine was changed in 48 hours in the city of Philadelphia. Why? Well, on a Friday evening, there were arrests made, and a search was made as the police officer looked at someone's pockets. They noticed those little vials crack used to come in in the little vials and that was reason enough to do the search the seizure the arrest and the conviction that was enough right like, oh I've got data I see the little vials over the weekend one weekend thousands and thousands and thousands of vials were gone and baggies were instituted now that's terrible isn't it I mean all think but think of the logistics Think of the marketing, think of the production costs, think of the delivery system, think of the sales. But it all, to destroy people's lives, ruin families, put people in the sewer. But they did all of that, in a, that's ingenious, isn't it? Yeah, but all that ingenuity, all of that work, toward a terrible end. When we suppress God's truth, we're not working with all the data. God's now non-existent or on the back burner. Our thinking is distorted, and we use our ingenuity, and before you know it, we're running off the rails. Well, next comes rejection. It just makes sense, doesn't it? If you're limiting the data, as God gives it, and you're distorting because you're only working with what you're allowing through, you then reject what God says. You want a perfect example of this? Just go back and reread Genesis 3. They walk right through the process. God gives them all the revelation they need. They, yeah, we're not sure about that. 
Then there's distortion. They listen to what the enemy says. They put what he says on the front burner. God on the back burner, before you know he's forgotten. Then they reject what God says. They reject God. But we can't have a vacuum. We've got to hold something. And they wind up embracing or substituting something else. There's the process. That's what Paul says in those verses. Here's the process in which God gets eliminated from our lives. We suppress his truth. We distort the data. We reject who he is and what he says. But we can't go through life empty-handed. Our hearts need something. We have to worship something. So we then substitute something for God. And whatever you substitute for God is your idol. That's why Paul keeps talking about idolatry in the chapter. And that's not something that we don't know anything about. You know, sometimes we look down our superior noses and say, oh yes, aren't you glad that we don't do such foolish things? We don't build little idols and we don't bow down to them, things of wood and stone and green and metal. We don't do that. But the process is still the same. The idols are just different. There's the process. Suppression, distortion, rejection, substitution. What do we do? This whole chapter, all of the first three chapters that describe the mess the human race is in, it's because of rejection and embrace. When you, when you reject God, you will embrace something else. You have to hold something. But rather than hold God, we hold a substitute. And the disease takes root. And before you know it, the tree will fall. That's the picture. Well, Paul now gives an illustration or an example. So after he kind of walks through the process, he gives an example. And here's the example in the verses that are on the screen. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the served, or, and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Isn't it interesting? God chooses sex as the example. Maybe because that explains it so well. What's God's original intention? After all, remember, sex is God's idea. Like human beings didn't dream it up. Uh-oh, I think we can do this. No, it was God's idea. He designed us, built us, and created us to have sex. But God's original intention was, this is how sex should be. What do we do? We reject what God says, and then we embrace something else. We take God's advice, right? We take what he says. We suppress it. Our thinking is distorted. We then reject it, and we embrace something else. And so the first verse there, verse 24 from chapter 1, is all about sex outside of God's parameters. That's it. God designed sex to be within certain boundaries. What do we do? We reject and embrace something else. We suppress, we distort, we reject, we embrace. We go right through the process. And then he lists or he gives a specific example after sex in general, homosexuality in particular. So here's what he says. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their oath. Now, uh, 
This is, by the way, the longest treatment of homosexuality in the Bible. You're thinking, well, it's not real long. It's not real long. This is it. It's not everything the Bible says about homosexuality. It's substantively pretty strong in what it says. But rather than just look at these verses, let me uh, kind of give you a little bit of the context. Let me paint on a broader canvas and tell you what the Bible says. Um, and I don't have to tell you the first one. The first one is, these are not pol politically correct words or beliefs in our culture. You feel that? I mean, even reading the, reading the screens, oh my goodness, how can you say that in front of people? Well, we have no choice. Somebody decided we're going to read through Romans, and here we are, we're in chapter 1, and we come up with it. So let me uh, draw on a bigger canvas. Here is what we need to know. First of all, as followers of Jesus, we are called to love and serve our neighbors, all of our neighbors, our neighbors who follow different religious systems, our neighbors who live by different values, our neighbors who have different sexual ideas. We are to love and serve our neighbors. We are not to look down our snooty noses. We are not to isolate. We are not to alienate. We are not to condemn. That's what we are not to do. We are to love and serve our neighbors. The second thing is uh, kind of interesting. And I wonder if Paul did this to uh, kind of make the point, because homosexuality was not unknown in Paul's day too. When you feel superior, I mean, you kind of, you know, raise your self-righteous little eyebrows and look at some sins, maybe it's homosexuality, and say, huh, how could they ever? That's like the worst thing ever. Is that right? I'll say it like this. Whenever you feel superior, you are going through the dynamic. When you feel superior... You are suppressing what God says about your heart and your life. You are distorting what God says. You are rejecting what Jesus told and how Jesus lived, and you are embracing something else. When you feel superior to anybody else, you are living the dynamic. That's bad news, friends. I don't know what to tell you. Lots of Christians in churches live out the dynamic. There are lots of gay people that have suffered at the hands of Christians. That's sinful. That's wrong. When we feel superior on any issue, we're living the dynamic. How did Jesus treat people who believed differently than he did? How did Jesus treat people that were living according to a different value system? How did Jesus treat people that were living out the dynamic? He loved them and served them. That's what we're to be doing. Homosexuality is not the worst sin. In fact, at the end of the chapter, there's a whole bunch of other sins. They're all listed together in the same chapter. It's not like these are worse than those. No, no, no. They come as a package. I'd be willing to bet we see your picture, I certainly see my picture, all over the place at the end of the chapter. So remember that. The next thing we need to say is that when God gives regulations, he doesn't do it to ruin our lives. He does it to fulfill our lives. God designed us, God built us, and God knows how we will flourish. And so when God gives rules about marriage and sex inside of marriage, when God gives rules about homosexuality, he's doing it because he loves us, not because he's trying to ruin our lives. We're going to ruin our lives if we live against the design. So the Bible does say, let me say them all, the Bible does say, 
polygamy, premarital sex, extramarital sex, no marital sex, homosexual sex are all outside of God's original intention. They're all outside. None of those is better or worse than any of the others of those. And at the end of the chapter, when you get the list, none of those are better or worse than any other one in the list either. Be careful of that internal process by which we feel superior. We're living out the dynamic. And the one key that you need to keep in mind, that's why I wanted to start with 116 and 17, but the good news of forgiveness and acceptance is for everyone. Nobody's too far that they can't come home. That's the gospel. That's how we need to be living. God says some things, but we need to live them out appropriately. Well, then he moves on to consequences. Consequences. And uh, I just want to read some of them from the end of the chapter. Uh, I already read them once. I want to read them again. Just yeah, You need to think about them. So here we go. At the end of verse 29. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Disobeying parents, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. When I read that list over this week, a couple of times, I kept thinking, I know those people. I see them on TV. I read about them in the movie. They go to Calvary Church, those people. I know them. And right when I was thinking that, I walked into the bathroom. And I picked up my razor to shave, and I looked in the mirror, and it was as if God hit me in the head with a hammer. He said, and you're looking at those people. Charles, you are those people. I am those people. But you've got to admit the decay and the rot if you're ever going to find a cure. We are those people. We are. Throughout the whole chapter, we are those people. But the gospel is for everyone. It sure is good news, isn't it? Paul lays out the black canvas before he paints the stunning brilliance of the gospel. We've got two more chapters of dark canvas, folks. It's as if Paul says, I don't want anybody to escape. I want everybody to look into the mirror, not to look at their neighbor, not to look in, into their spouse's eyes, not to look at somebody else, not to look at your person in your row, not to look and say, yeah, I see those people. No, he wants us to look into the mirror and say, I am those people. And once you admit you are those people, you're a whole lot closer to home than you were before you said, I just know those people. So what's the conclusion? Well, here's the conclusion. I was reading, I'm, I'm reading through Isaiah these days. And Isaiah 45, 12 says it like this. Isaiah has those long chapters of, you know, kind of like Paul, right? You're, you're no good. Look in the mirror. You are those people. You are. And here's what it says. Isaiah 45, 22. You add this to the list you need to memorize. Right? Here we go. God says through Isaiah, turn to me and be saved. And here's the next part. For I am God. There is no other. Turn to me and be saved. For I am God. There is no other. 
You may not like some of what Paul says in these first few chapters of Romans. That's okay. I'm not sure I like it either. But he is God, and there is no other. You can reject him and embrace whatever or whoever you want. But make no mistake, there is only forgiveness and grace and repentance and justification and all that in him, nowhere else. So what's the moral to the story that we need to keep reminding ourselves as we go through another week or so of this disease and destruction chapters here? Here's what we need to remember. First of all, remember, remember. The human race has suppressed and forgotten who God, we need to remember. Remember who God is and what he says, and then return. I mean, part of the good news is you can come back. It's not like you mess up, you're gone forever. Otherwise, we'd all be gone. Remember and return. So I want to end right where I started. And hopefully now, what Paul wrote in chapter 1, 16 and 17, feels a little bit more like good news. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to a diseased and rotten tree. And that salvation is for everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, last, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Not by jumping through hoops, not by list of do's and don'ts, but by faith in God, remembering and returning, not living out the dynamic of destruction, but the dynamic of faith. Let's stand and pray. Father, we confess that uh, what Paul wrote here at the end of chapter 1 in Romans is pretty uh, strong medicine. Maybe they weren't the happiest thoughts that we wanted to think today, but they're the thoughts we need to think. And maybe on that dark canvas of a diseased and rotten tree, seeing the cure And the health that comes through Jesus actually makes that good news all the better. Lord, help us to uh, not look at others, feel superior, and say, I know these people. Help us to look in the mirror, say, I am these people. But I've got a Savior who came and paid my way so I can come back to God and to other people. Now let's live thanking Jesus and continuing what he started. We pray in his name. Amen.